So sometime between A.D. 90 and 94, the last of the original 12 apostles, John the Beloved, he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to the Christian community. Now at that time, John was an elderly man and he was living up in Ephesus. So by way of introduction, uh, let's talk about this for a little while. He's there in Ephesus. It's somewhere, as I said, between 90 and 94 AD, and John is an elderly man. He's most likely not just pastoring in Ephesus, but most likely he's also overseeing other pastors in that area. Um, Asia Minor, we call it modern-day Western Turkey. I know that if I was alive around 90 AD and I lived um, there in Asia Minor and I was a pastor, I definitely would voluntarily go to the Apostle John and ask if our church could be under his apostolic covering. I mean, it would just be an amazing, amazing thing. And so no doubt, not only is he pastoring in Ephesus, but he's also probably overseeing the pastor's uh, probably in the uh, churches that he wrote letters to in the book of Revelation. So Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, even Laodicea, though they had a lot of repenting to do. And so it had been about six decades since the Spirit of God descended on the 120 disciples on the day of Pentecost down in Jerusalem. So when John wrote this letter that we're studying here this morning, you need to know that the Big C Church was about 60 years old at this time. Now the good news is that the Apostle Paul, uh, probably more than anybody, but also Peter and John, the other apostles and their associates, they had taken the gospel and they, by this time, 8090, they had spread the gospel all around the Roman Empire. All that area of yellow around the Mediterranean Sea is the Roman Empire, and so they started in AD 33 or thereabout in Jerusalem. They took it to Judea, they took it to Samaria, and they took it eventually to the uttermost parts of the known world at that time, including the capital of the Roman Empire, and of course, that's Rome. The bad news is that during that time, false teachers had also come on the scene, and they had spread their false teachings all around the Roman Empire as well. And so one of the reasons John wrote the letter that we're about to uh, continue to study was twofold. One, he wanted to warn the Christian community about all these false teachers. And then number two, he wanted to remind them of something. And this is the main idea of our uh, message today. He wanted to remind them, these Christians, that they had the spiritual discernment to recognize false teaching. They had the spiritual discernment to recognize false teaching. Now, as we continue the introduction, I want to show you where I get that from. Please look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. So he says to these Christians, he says, but you have been anointed. Can you guys say the word anointed, please? But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And so the knowledge and the discernment that these Christians had came from the anointing that they had received. In the Old Testament, when a priest um, was set apart to do the service of the Lord, they anointed that Old Testament priest with olive oil. That's the Old Testament. 
In the New Testament, you need to know that all believers, can you say the word all, please? All believers have been anointed, not with olive oil, but, 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 but with the blessed Holy Spirit. We see that again in verse 20. But you, Christians, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So what am I talking about? What I'm saying is that when a person is going their own way and doing their own thing, and they hear the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is drawing them, right? And they turn from the darkness of their sin, and they turn to the light of the world, Jesus Christ understanding that he died on the cross for them and rose bodily from the grave, and they receive Christ as the Savior and Lord of their lives. Here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit comes into that person, and the Holy Spirit does wonderful things inside of that person. The Holy Spirit regenerates them. By the way, quick side note, regeneration does not precede faith. Regeneration happens at the point of faith. Okay, and so the Holy Spirit comes in and he regenerates them. What does that mean? He makes them spiritually alive. And not only that, he seals them until the day of redemption. And not only that, he indwells that person. But that's not all. When the Holy Spirit comes into that person, he also gives that new believer, listen to this, spiritual discernment. He gives them spiritual knowledge. It's a gift. I mean, you can get discernment and knowledge in life experiences, and you can get um, discernment and knowledge at college, right? That's not what we're talking about here in the Bible. We're talking about a gift from the Holy Spirit, spiritual knowledge. All right, so in the Greek, the word knowledge here means to perceive, notice, and can you guys say the underlined word, please? Discern. What does this mean? That means that when you, if you're a born-again Christian, when you turn from the darkness of your sin, by the way, I just wanna throw this in there. Um, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you think, I gotta clean up my act and then he'll accept me. Don't believe that. You can't clean up your act. Only Jesus can clean you up. Right? You gotta be willing to turn though. You gotta be willing to turn. So whenever that was, that time was born again Christian, when you turn from the darkness to the light of the world, believing he died for you, for your sins and rose bodily on the third day and you received Christ as your Savior and Lord, here's what I know. The Spirit of God came inside of you. Listen, whether you felt him or not, the Spirit of God came inside of you. And what did he do inside of you? Well, he regenerated you. He sealed you. He indwells you right now. And he gave you spiritual discernment. It's a gift. Now, what in the world are we talking about? Well, God Questions defines spiritual discernment. It is simply this, the ability to tell the difference between truth and error. It's basic to having wisdom. So if you're here today and you've been born again by the Spirit of God, here's what I know, God has given you that. God has given you spiritual discernment. God has given you wisdom. He's giving you wisdom to know what teachers are legit and what teachers are not legit. What teachings ring true and what teachings just kind of sound off. Now here's what I know. Um, we have an amazing worship team here at Calvary. Um, Pastor Reagan has done an amazing job putting together a team here, right? 
And so we got excellent musicians, we got excellent vocalists, they all sound wonderful, right? And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to come and, and to be bled into the presence of the Lord with all this beautiful music. But here's what I know. If I was your worship leader, and I came out here, and I, got, I started singing, uh, after about 10 seconds, you'd be like, make him stop, right? Why? Because it sounds off. Well, the same thing happens in the spiritual realm. When we've been born again, when we've been anointed by the Holy One, here's what I know. We have a spiritual discernment, and we can tell whether that preacher is saying the right thing or there's something off. Have you ever been in that church? Have you ever watched that Christian television program? And it's like, no, I don't think that's right. Well, that's what we're talking about right here. And so now look again at verse 18. Now that the introduction is over, we're gonna break it down verse by verse. So I always ask you this, don't I? Because I really want you guys to bring your Bibles to church. So if you are looking right now at 1 John 2.18, can you say amen? amen? Here we go. Children. So he's speaking to the children of God. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Okay, so what in the world did John mean by the last hour? Well, I know that I get by with a little help from my friends, and so I reached all the way back to a 19th century theologian named Albert Barnes, and he said that the last hour refers to, quote, the closing period or dispensation in which the affairs of the world are ultimately to be wound up. The apostle does not say that the end of the world would soon occur, nor does he intimate how long this dispensation would be. So here's what you need to know. Throughout biblical history, I mean, starting from Genesis all the way till right now, throughout biblical history, there have been various dispensations, or I'll call them divinely appointed administrations, having to do with how God ordered things at that time. Now, what you need to know is that during these dispensations, salvation, the way of salvation, has never changed. That's important, right? Way back in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul tells us in Romans chapter four, one through three, that Abraham was justified, declared righteous by faith alone, and we're saved the same way today. And so even though the way of salvation has never changed, the way God has related to his people in various dispensations has changed. For example, from the time Moses came down Mount Sinai with the law of Moses till the time of Jesus Christ, God's people Israel were under the dispensation of law. What does that mean? That means that even though the way of salvation has never changed, God related with his people through the law of Moses. But here's the good news. The good news is that when Jesus Christ came from his first coming until his second coming, the church is under the dispensation of grace. 
John 1, 7 says the law came through Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So we're in the age of grace. Now, it was great news that Moses came and Israel was there in the Old Testament. What was the bad news is that nobody could keep the law. (laughs) And you and I can't keep the law. And so thank God, Jesus Christ came and he kept the law perfectly for us and lived a perfect life. And now when we turn to him, he gives us grace. So we're in the dispensation of grace right now. And nobody knows how long this age is gonna last. By the way, if anybody sets a date for Christ's return, Shut that guy off. Go to another website. Don't go to that person's church. And please don't buy their book. Stop making these guys millionaires. Jesus said, and I quote, no one knows the day or the hour. Somebody once said to me, oh yeah, pastor, he said day and hour. He didn't say the year. (laughs) Drives me nuts. No one knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows. And so that's why the apostles lived with the constant expectancy. You see this in Paul's writings. The apostles lived in the constant expectancy that Jesus could come at any time. And I believe God's will, it's my personal belief, that it's been God's will for every generation of his children to live with that same expectancy that man, today could be the day that we're going home. Today could be that day. And so I'm excited because next week I read ahead and as I finish up chapter two and start chapter three, it's all about Christ's return. And so we're gonna be talking about Christ's return next week, invite a friend. But suffice it now to say that when the New Testament, when the New Testament speaks of the last days or the last hour, it's speaking about this age of grace that we're in right now. Some people call it the church age. All right, so verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. All right, John said the Antichrist is coming. And so what does that mean? That means when you go to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, also authored by John, you see that there is a literal person coming on the scene. And this person is gonna become a global political leader. And what is he going to do? He's going to temporarily reign over the world um, during the what we call the tribulation period, right? We know from Daniel chapter nine, this tribulation period in the future is gonna last for seven years Jesus talked about the last three and a half years. He called it the great tribulation. That's when everything really um, gets, gets crazy. And so there is an antichrist coming, Revelation chapter 13. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ is coming again. And when Jesus Christ comes, he's gonna take that evil political leader and he's gonna capture him and he's gonna throw him into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 19. And then the really good news is that after Jesus comes back, we are going to enter into the final dispensation, the final age. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called the kingdom age. Let me tell you something. Evil that you see all around you, it is not gonna continue indefinitely. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is gonna come back and he's gonna make right what went wrong. Praise be his name. Thank God. So you have hope. I have hope. 
we have hope. It's called the millennium. And when God, uh, when the millennium comes, God's gonna fulfill all the promises that he made in the Old Testament for Israel. Why? Because God's a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. And so if you're out there and you're an amillennialist, you say, I don't know what that means. Good for you, okay? But if you're out there, ah, mean, in Latin meaning no millennium, and you think what I'm saying right now is not true, and you think that the millennium is a spiritual thing and Jesus is on the throne of David right now, I would just respectfully say, brother or sister in Christ, please don't change the hermeneutic that you use as you interpret the Bible. What does that mean? Hermeneutics means how, you, how do you translate the Bible? How do you interpret, better said, the Bible? And so, listen, if all the prophecies about Christ's first coming, if we interpret those literally and they were fulfilled literally, then why in the world do we change things up? We change our hermeneutics and now all of a sudden a bunch of the second coming prophecies, we spiritualize them and say that's not gonna be literal. Okay, so we at this church believe in what's called the historical grammatical interpretation of the word of God, allowing for tons of metaphors, tons of figures of speech, tons of symbolism. The book of Revelation is filled with symbolism, but guess what? Behind every symbol, there's a literal truth. And so what does that mean? That means there really is gonna be a final seven years where all hell's gonna break loose. There really is gonna be an antichrist. Christ is literally gonna come and Christ is literally gonna reign over the world for a thousand years before there's a new heavens and a new earth, and I'm already preaching next week's sermon, so I better stop and keep on going on this message right here. All right, so look at verse 18. He says, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So while history waits for the, we'll call him the big Antichrist, there's lots of, we'll call them little antichrists that are all around. By AD 90, there was already a lot of these false teachers on the scene that John had to go toe to toe with. And by the way, their number has only increased in our day. This is how you tell the difference between us and them. It's really simple. John tells us later in his letter, in 1 John chapter four, we'll put that up on the screen. 1 John chapter four, by the way, um, we're in chapter two, that means we'll get to this passage in about a year, okay, so just so you know. So by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? Fully man, fully human. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, praise the Lord. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, the very clear inference there is does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is not from God. And this is the spirit of what? Antichrist. And so John has to deal with this. This is one of the reasons he writes the letter. You see, in John's day, there was the beginning stages of what is known as Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism was this horrible, horrible heresy that was the, probably the number one headache 
of true believers in the first 300 years of the church's history. By the way, thank God for guys like Irenaeus, who wrote against heresies, against these guys as it got stronger um, in, 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 the, in the future. But in John's time, in AD 90, this is the incipient um, time of Gnosticism. And what does that mean? Well, the, the word in Greek means uh, gnosis, it means to know, okay? And so this is what John was dealing with. It's a philosophy based on higher knowledge. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that there was these false teachers. By the way, I'm sure they looked really good. I'm sure they spoke really cool, right? But they, they thought they were of the elite. You know, we're up here and all of you guys are down there. But guess what? I got good news for you. If you want the secret knowledge, if you want the hidden spiritual higher knowledge, just follow my teachings. And by the way, you can't go to heaven. You can't get saved unless you buy in to this higher knowledge. So it's a philosophy based on higher knowledge that believed matter was evil and spirit was good. How convenient for these guys who like to, uh, some of them live perverted lifestyles. What does that mean? Well, hey, matter is evil, spirit's good. What does that mean? That means that your body is matter, your body is evil, there's nothing you can do about that. So you can do whatever you wanna do in your body. You can sin all day long, but it's okay because your spirit's good. You see how, I mean, right now, does it sound like Pastor Reagan is singing or Pastor Mike is singing right now? There's something wrong here. It's me singing off. And so this is off. <laughs> A philosophy based on higher knowledge that believed matter was evil, spirit was good. Gnostics held to a certain diet, they kept certain feast days, and here's a big red flag, they worshiped angels. But here's the worst of all, they denied the humanity of Christ, and they taught that he was one of many spirit beings who came from God. How many of you guys know that Satan and his demonic forces, they, they attack, they resist, they come against all the teachings of the word of God? That's why people laugh at this book, ridicule this book, make us think like, um, try to make us think like we're all just a bunch of dummies and they're so smart, right? Satan hates this book. He hates the teachings of this book. But you need to know this. If you're listening right now, say amen here. Probably the most important thing I'll say all day. The two teachings that Satan attacks the most has to do with two questions. Question number one, who is Jesus Christ? Question number two, how can I be saved? That's what he goes after with both barrels blazing. And so when someone teaches error, falsehood about the person of Jesus Christ, and when somebody teaches error and falsehood against how can somebody be saved? You know that that person is a false teacher. Now in John's day, it was happening. A false teacher came on the scene. His name was Serinthus. Serinthus. Now before you look at the screen, look at me please. Serinthus was guilty of what's known as syncretism. Now this is not hard to understand. Everybody say the word syncretism. 
That simply means in the religious realm, cherry picking from different religions, little bit, a little bit, little bit, to make your own thing. Okay, so that's what Serenthus did. He took a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Christianity, and a whole lot of Gnosticism. He put it all together, and this is what he came up with. By the way, this is a contemporary of the Apostle John. This guy was on the scene when this letter that we're studying was first written. And so he taught that Jesus was the biological son of Joseph and Mary, and that the Christ Spirit came upon him after his baptism and departed from him near, near the end of his life. Now, those who don't have the Spirit of God inside of them can look at that and say, okay, whatever, no big deal, right? That's your truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. Who cares? But ladies and gentlemen, those of you who have the Spirit of God inside of you, when you read that, you know something's off. Something is wrong. And so here's the truth. At the incarnation, can you guys please say the word incarnation? Which by the way, Serenthus denied the incarnation. But at the incarnation, when the eternal Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, when he came down and he entered time and space through a virgin's womb, and he added a human nature to his already eternally existing divine nature, when he wrapped himself in human flesh, that's called the incarnation, he became a real human being. He became a real man. And since the incarnation, Jesus Christ will forever be one person. Can you guys say one person? With two natures. Can you please say two natures? These two natures, ladies and gentlemen, they're, they're, they're distinct, right? Two distinct natures, and yet they're inseparable. And so from the incarnation, Jesus Christ will forever be one person with two distinct yet inseparable natures, fully God and fully man. That's the true Christ of the Bible. Well, someone says, well, didn't the Holy Spirit come upon him at his baptism? Yeah, to empower him for his public ministry as a man. But you need to know that Christ is fully God from all eternity, and since the incarnation, he's fully God and fully man. But Serenthus came on the scene, and what did he do? He denied this truth about Christ. And that's one of the reasons John wrote this letter. And by the way, Serenthus is dead. So what, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with me? Well, listen, there's false teachers today, and they're everywhere. They're on social media, they're on the internet, they're in various, quote unquote, churches. They're all around. You may, be, you may have family members or friends who've bought into false teaching. So let me make this as relevant as I can, okay? Um, everybody's familiar with the people who knock on your door on Saturday, right? That's when you close the blinds and shh, don't talk. <laughs> By the way, Pastor Andrew told me uh, that he got to share truth for an hour with a Jehovah Witness yesterday, so praise God uh, for that. But who, who do the Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus is? Okay, here, listen to this. Who do the 
Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus is. Jesus is not God. By the way, I'm quoting from Christianity, Cults, and Religions, put out by Rose Publishing. Um, there's a book called Kingdom of the Cults, that if you want to go deeper in this stuff. All right, so Jehovah Witnesses. Jesus is not God. Before he lived on earth, he was Michael the Archangel. Jehovah made the universe through him. On earth, he was a man who lived a perfect life. After dying on a stake, not a cross, he was resurrected as a spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope right now you're like, something's off. Right? Because listen to this. If you're listening, say amen. Here, one of the most important teachings of historical Christianity is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come on, Thomas, put your finger in my, the holes of my hand and see that I, it's me. He didn't rise spiritually, he rose bodily. On the third day, from the grave, that's true Christianity. But these people say, no, 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 he died on a stake and he rose as a spirit and his body was destroyed. Jesus is not coming again. He quote unquote returned invisibly in 1940 in spirit. Do you guys know that? I didn't know, you heard, I didn't know if you knew that. I thought I'd just tell you that. He already came back in 1914. These are the people who knock on your door. And they're all over the Treasure Coast. And so I'm trying to make this relevant. How about the Mormons? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right? Who do they think Jesus is? Jesus is a separate God from the Father, Elohim. He was created as a, by the way, he was created, I hope red flags are going all around your head right now. He was created as a spirit child by the father and mother in heaven and is the elder brother of all men and spirit beings. His body was created through sexual union between Elohim, God, and Mary. And Jesus himself was married. His death on the cross does not provide full atonement for all sin, but does provide everyone with resurrection. That's the Mormons. And we could talk about the Unification Church, Church uh, Christian Science, which is neither Christian nor science. We could talk about Unity School of Christianity, Scientology, Wicca, New Age, whatever. All I have time for is world religion, the largest one on earth, Islam, Muslims. Who do they say Jesus was? Quote, Jesus, Isa in Arabic, is one of the most respected of over 124,000 prophets sent by Allah. Jesus was sinless, born of a virgin, and a great miracle worker, but not the son of God. His virgin birth is like Adam's creation. Jesus is not God, and God is not Jesus. He was not crucified. I don't know if you knew that, but Muslims do not believe Jesus Christ was crucified. By the way, therefore, they don't believe he rose again the third day. Jesus, not Mohammed, will return for a special role before the future judgment day, perhaps turning Christians to Islam. So, what's your point, pastor? My point is that the quote-unquote Jesus of the cults and world religions, false religions, that Jesus can't save anybody because that's a false Jesus.
and you say, you're not being very nice this morning. Pastor, judge not that you be not judged. Well, can I just say something to you guys with all the love in my heart, okay? In Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. But he wasn't talking about all judgment at all times. Okay, people like to cherry pick verses out of context and then they want you to affirm their lifestyle or they want you to affirm their false belief. You gotta leave the verse in its context. What does the context say? The context says, don't judge people hypocritically. In other words, if I'm participating in a private sin, I don't get to call somebody out publicly for the same sin I'm committing privately because then I'm a hypocrite. Then what am I doing? I'm trying to take the speck out of my brother's eye without having first taken the log out of my own eye. That's the context. But he says, first cast out the log from your eye so you can take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. He wants you to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. He wants you to judge. And not just that, but in verse six, in the same context, what does he say? He says, don't cast your pearls before swine because they will trample them underfoot and then turn and attack you. Sounds like a judgment to me. Okay, and so, listen, we gotta keep the Bible in its context and we gotta judge. We gotta judge between right and wrong, truth and error, and we gotta judge between what is authentic and what is lies. And so, what am I doing here? I'm just trying to be a good pastor of a flock of people, and I'm trying to warn you about false teaching, about wolves that would love to come and rip you off. Okay, so that's what I'm doing. All right. If you wanna send an email to me and tell me how mean I'm being, just send it to asturkin at calvarypsl.com and we'll make sure we answer you within 24 hours. All right, so let's keep going here. Verse 19, it says, they went out from us, speaking about false teachers. Please look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What does that mean? It means that those false teachers who were denying the truth about Jesus Christ were never saved to begin with. How does John know that? Because they left the true churches that were based on the teachings of Jesus and the apostles to go and start their own group uh, teaching against Christ and teaching heresy. All right, so what is heresy? Heresy is conscious, the conscious willful departure from the faith's foundational tenets, such as the Trinity, Christ's deity and humanity, his atoning death and resurrection, I would say bodily resurrection, and also, and so forth. Heretics, by definition, are not Christians. How do you know? That sounds so judgmental, because God says through John in his word, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That means that when a guy comes on the scene, right, and uh, you've known this guy for a long time, and he used to be a Christian, but now he's denying that Jesus Christ is God's son. In fact, he's walked away from the faith. 
You need to know something. That guy did not lose his salvation. That guy was never truly saved to begin with. That's what it's saying right here. How many of you guys know you can have a head knowledge about Christ, you can know about Christ, and yet not know Christ in your heart? So many people are religious. So many people have an intellectual ascent, right? But then they walk away from everything. They were never born again to begin with. And this is why we preach the gospel every service here at Calvary, because we want people to be born again. We want people to be anointed. We want them to have the spiritual discernment and knowledge to know right from wrong and truth from error. And so they were never saved to begin with. And the same thing still happens today, which is why Chuck Swindoll warned. He said throughout history and even today, many cult founders formerly belonged to strong Bible-believing churches but they rebelled against their orthodox upbringing, failing to be either discipled or disciplined. They broke away to teach different doctrines and embrace contrary lifestyles. And so, in other words, false teachers, what do they do? They rebel against orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What is orthodoxy? Right, you've been to the orthodontist. Ortho, straight, right, true, right? So you go to an orthodontist to straighten out your teeth. What's orthodoxy? Ortho, straight, right, true, doxy, doctrine or teaching. Orthodoxy is simply right teaching. False teachers rebel against that. And they also rebel against orthopraxy. What is that? Ortho, right, straight, true, praxy, practice or lifestyle. And so, they rebel, false teachers rebel against right living. So they rebel against right teaching, right doctrine, and they rebel against right living, holy living. And so that's why they leave the churches. Ladies and gentlemen, they hate churches like this because we will never stop teaching the word of God and we will never stop calling people to holy living. And they can't handle it. They can't handle it. So what do they do? They go and start their own little group. And it's very, very sad. Now, look at verse 20, because John right now is switching gears. He's now talking back to the Christians. So he went from they in verse 19, that's false teachers, but now it's you, this is the Christians in verse 20. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Now, I know I already taught this in my introduction, but I thought it was really cool what Dr. Tony Evans said about the anointing. Check it out. He says, the anointing is not some special gift shared by only elite clergy. Now, I gotta stop right there because we are, I think we are, I know I am, and I know most of you are, what's called evangelicals, okay? And so I would say that this is where evangelicals really mess up. There are way too many celebrities in the evangelical movement. There are way too many people put up on pedestals where we think they got a special anointing. So only that person can come to my house and pray over my house, not this regular Christian. And only that person can pray for me because they have the special anointing, not these other Christians. And can I just go up and can I just at least touch this person? Because, you know, I think something spiritual might happen. 
ladies and gentlemen, can you please not fall into that trap? Can you need, please not put me or any of the other pastors in this church on a pedestal? Can you please understand that we are just your brothers in Jesus Christ? We are made of the same flesh and blood that you are made of, okay? I don't have any special anointing. The same Holy Spirit that lives in you lives in me, okay? Now, now some Christians, granted, Ephesians chapter five, are full of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Some are walking in the flesh. I get that teaching. That's a whole other teaching, but we're talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit here. So the anointing is not some special gift shared by only elite clergy. Every Christian has the anointing. What's that? The internal teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit who illumines the believer's mind to understand and apply God's truth as well as to detect deception. So every believer, can you guys say every believer, has the anointing. And it's right there in the Bible. Look at verse 18. What is, I want you guys to participate here. Just shout it out. What is the first word in verse 18? What is it? Children. You see that? If you see, if you see children, say amen. Okay, so he's talking to children. Now go down to verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. So what does that mean? It means all Christians, as Tony said, have the anointing. Verse 21. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Okay, so how do they know the truth? They had the anointing. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one, boy, this is powerful. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. And somebody says, well, wait, time out. I believe in God. I believe in the father. I just don't believe this guy 2,000 years ago who lived in an obscure area of the world called Galilee, who grew up in Nazareth and was a stonemason turned itinerant preacher. I don't happen to believe that this person is the divine son of God. I don't believe that he is fully God and fully man. I don't believe he's the son of God. But I believe in God. Well, if that's you, John would say two things to you. Number one, you're an antichrist. And number two, you don't have the Father. That's what the Word of God says. You say, that's not loving. L ladies and gentlemen, can we please get over this whole thing? Listen, we're, we're be, we're, here's what's happening in, 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 many, uh, in many Christians' lives. We're being conformed to the world. And you know how we're being conformed to the world? We are defining love like the world defines love. We're defining love like our culture defines love. How does our culture define love? They say that love is affirming. So you have to affirm my false teaching, you have to affirm my false lifestyle, you have to affirm everything about me if you really love me. That is not true. Parents, do you affirm everything that your kid does, good and bad? If you loved your kid like that, they'll grow up to be a monster. That's not love. What we do when we love somebody, as Pastor Will said last week, we speak the truth in love to them so that they can grow up and be followers of Jesus Christ. That's what love is. All that was free. I know it's 11.35 and I'm way off my notes, so I'm gonna get back and I'm gonna finish this right now. All right, verse 20, 
4. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So John exhorts the Christian community, and if he was here today, he would exhort all of you, let what you heard from the beginning abide, remain, continue in you. All right, so what is the beginning? Well, David Guzik, Calvary Chapel pastor, the beginning for these believers describes the time when they were under the teaching of the who? Apostles, which is now recorded for us in what? The New Testament. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what it truly means to be orthodox. I'm not talking about orthodox big O. I'm not necessarily talking about any Christian denomination right now. I'm talking about little O orthodox. This is what it means to have right doctrine, right teaching. It is abiding in the teachings of the apostles and Jesus, which is in now the New Testament. That's what it means. That's why we love the early church. That's why so many years ago we chose to model this church after the early church. Why? Because Acts 2.42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. That's what we want to do here, and that's how we can discern lies from the truth. And so how in the world do bank cashiers spot a counterfeit bill? How are they trained to know the difference? Listen, they're not trained. Bank cashiers are not trained to spot counterfeit money by studying counterfeit cash. No, it's always changing. There's so many thieves in our world, they're always changing that. So the way that they detect a counterfeit is by studying real cash, okay? So having an intimate knowledge of what is true helps them to discern what is false. And I think you guys know where I'm going here, right? How in the world can we detect counterfeit teaching? It's not by spending all our time studying all these false religions and cults in the world. Who's got time for that? No, 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 no. The way we recognize counterfeit teaching is by studying the real thing. And this is the real thing right here. This is it. So study the word of God. Now where does this knowledge and discernment come from? Well, we just saw it. The external witness of the apostles in verse 24 and 25. And then the internal witness of the spirit. Let's read our last two verses and then we'll make some concluding comments. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, he says it again, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches us or you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So how do we spot false teaching? Verse 24 and 25 is the external witness of the apostles, we have that now, it's called the New Testament, the canon is closed. And then where do we get this knowledge and discernment? It's the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, it is the anointing that he just talked about. By the way, when John said, you have no need that anybody should teach you, 
He wasn't saying the word anybody to include both good and bad teachers. <laughs> in the context, he's talking about false teachers here. So when he said in verse 27, you have no need that anybody should teach you, he's talking about false teachers. Why? Because in the context, they were coming and they were trying to deceive the people. And so anyone refers to false teachers, not true teachers. If John was saying, hey, church family, because you have the anointing, um, you don't need anybody, good or bad teachers, to teach you. You got it. If that's what he was saying, then why in the world would he write them a letter? Why in the world would they need John's teaching ministry in their life? Why in the world would the Bible say, stop forsaking yourselves together as, a, as is the manner of some? Why in the world, as Pastor Will taught last week in Ephesians 4.11, did God give some pastor teachers to the body of Christ? So he's not talking about good teachers here. We need good teaching. More than ever today, we need in this world spirit-filled Bible teaching pastors to help people grow up in the Lord. That's what we need. And by the way, I'm always throwing up different names because I want you guys to have access to solid people like Chuck Swindoll, like Tony Evans, like David Guzik. I threw in a curveball, Albert Barnes from the 19th century, Chuck Smith, Warren Wearsby, Blue Letter Bible, got questions. I'm always giving all this out to you because I want you to know there's solid, solid resources out there. In closing, here's what Jesus said. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? And that's a sobering picture, isn't it? For anybody who's thinking, Pastor, you were kind of mean today. You were kind of, you know, judgy. And, you know, I just don't know if you should say the things you say. So what, what you're saying is you want me to go and pet this animal and let him into the flock and let him do whatever he wants to do. Is that what you want? in the name of affirming everybody? That's not my call. That's not Pastor Will's call or Pastor Andrew's call or any of the pastors on staff. We're called to feed the flock of God, the word of God, but shepherds also have a staff. And we're called to beat these things over the head to keep them away for your spiritual benefit. So let's beware of people who come on the scene with sheep's clothing, teaching another Jesus. And let's beware of people coming on the scene in sheep's clothing who teach a different way of salvation because there's only one way of salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, amen?